Hello, I'm Claire Campford. It's Tuesday the 16th of February. Today, Iran is moving towards a military dictatorship. Tough talking from US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The aim will be to target those big companies controlled by the Revolutionary Guard and make it illegal to do business with those companies. And that could end up affecting a lot of the Iranian economy. Unfit for purpose, a Guardian investigation reveals the real state of the UK's college campuses. Our lawyers at the Guardian sort of estimate that um, Hefke, the Higher Education Funding Council for England, um, probably spent up to 50,000 actually trying to keep this information secret. Rich Russians are getting even richer. We've more on the list that reveals the details of those luxury lives. And quids in. £56 million are on their way to one lucky British Euro Millions lottery winning couple. We just went in the front room, didn't we, and just stood there laughing. It was just an amazing feeling, wasn't it? Yeah. Iran is becoming a military dictatorship. That's the view of US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Speaking to students in Qatar, she said Iran's elite army, the Revolutionary Guard, had so much power they were effectively governing the country. She's urging the world community to agree on sanctions and said that the US would not stand idly by and watch Iran acquire a nuclear weapon. The Guardian's diplomatic editor is Julian Borger. Julian, this is a clear message that the US is not going to stand by while Iran develops a nuclear weapon. Yes, it is. And uh, it's a message also about how the US and its allies intend to go about getting another layer of sanctions uh, applied. They aim to target the Revolutionary Guard and try and drive a wedge between the Revolutionary Guard and the Iranian people so that it doesn't look as though the West is targeting Iran, but targeting the the new military economic elite of Iran. It remains to be seen whether that will work. Are there any specific examples of how they're going to do that targeting? Obviously, sanctions you've mentioned, but how are they going to really focus in on the Revolutionary Guard? Well, the Revolutionary Guard own and control a wide range of companies that are active in all areas of the uh, Iranian economy. They're, they're very big in construction. They're dominant in construction. They're dominant in oil and gas, import, export. They're also dominant in, in the, the black economy, the smuggling uh, that goes on along Iran's borders. So the aim will be to target those big companies controlled by the Revolutionary Guard and make it illegal to do business with those companies, and that could end up affecting a lot of the Iranian economy. A very good example of how they used their military clout to further their economic aspirations was the uh, Imam Khomeini airport in 2004. The contract for running it had been given to a foreign consortium, a Turkish-Austrian consortium. The day it was supposed to uh, open, the Revolutionary Guard turn up in force, block the runways, close down the airport, uh, and it remains closed down until it's reopened under their control, and they've controlled it ever since. Now, Hillary Clinton has said that Iran is becoming a military dictatorship. Those are very tough words. Do you think she's right? Well, it certainly has become a much more uh, military-run country Uh, particularly under Ahmadinejad and particularly since the political crisis following the presidential elections last year. The Revolutionary Guard uh, in particular have risen in importance and uh, the clerics, the ayatollahs in the the holy city of Qom have become 
less important uh, as the supreme leader Ali Khamenei has rewarded the Revolutionary Guard for staying loyal to him and have da- has downgraded the Ayatollahs in Qom and the Ayatollahs around the country who have been much more sceptical about Ali Khamenei's claims to be the supreme leader, his theological claims for that position and his authority. Now, China's dragging its feet when it comes to supporting the idea of sanctions, and that's a crucial sticking point, isn't it? Yes, it remains to be seen whether China can be brought on on board. Inevitably, as with all UN Security Council resolutions, there will be a fudge. There will be some kind of compromise uh, in which the, the intended sanctions uh, will be diluted in return for uh, Chinese agreement. Unless Washington decides, no, we don't want to go that route, we're going to do it with our allies, it'll be a sort of coalition of the willing sanctions, rather than dilute uh, Security Council sanctions, or a combination of the two, dilute UN sanctions coupled with uh, much stronger measures being followed by US, EU and the Gulf allies. Now, Tehran is still saying it needs the nuclear fuel for a medical research reactor. Is everyone convinced by that? Other Muslim countries? It's hard to generalise. I would say that there is distinction. Other Muslim and, and, and the Arab countries of the Middle East, the governments are very worried about uh, Iran's uh, nuclear ambitions. You find on the, on the street, on the, on the Arab street, there's far more support for an Iranian bomb and accusations uh, directed at the West of hypocrisy that the, the, the Israel's uh, nuclear weapons have been permitted and uh, allowed for su- such a long time. Why not an Islamic nuclear weapon in the, in the region? Julian Borger. And you can get the latest on the tensions between the US and Iran at guardian.co.uk forward slash world. The Guardian has obtained a secret database detailing the state of university lecture theatres and student accommodation in the UK. The figures show scores of buildings have been judged unfit for purpose. Universities argue they've spent hundreds of millions in refurbishment since the judgments were made two years ago. Jessica Shepherd told Guardian Daily's Andy Duckworth about her investigation. There are some universities that have sort of um, more than a third, and in some cases two-thirds of their building, in the worst possible condition. So in terms of their condition, the condition is described as inoperable or serious risk of major failure or breakdown. Um, and in another category, whether it's sort of the building is fit for purpose. Um, The building is described as poor, the rooms fail to support current functions and are unsuitable for current use. So places um, like um, Heriot Watt has 42% um, in 2007-8 of its uh, non-residential estate. So that's things like lecture theatres and libraries that are in the worst possible condition. And uh, the LSE um, has 41% of its uh, lecture theatres, libraries, non-residential estate that are unsuitable for current use. So as well as kind of the lecture theatre side of things, there's the halls of residence, the places where students are spending a great deal of their time. How do they they come out of this? Well, they come out pretty badly. Um, City University in London, um, 41% of its um, residential buildings, so that's halls of residences, student accommodation, that was um, in a poor... Uh, unsuitable for current use uh, category. Um, and the University College Plymouth, St. Mark and St. John had 19% of its uh, residential buildings um, were inoperable 
or serious, at serious risk of major failure or breakdown. This is pretty worrying, uh, the state of uh, Britain's universities. It is. I mean, it's, it's even more worrying given that um, last week the Higher Education Funding Council for England, um, which is the sort of a government agency which distributes funds on behalf of the, the government um, to universities, um, announced that um, a 14% reduction in the amount that universities were going to be given to their capital projects. So that's things like building programmes. So if the buildings uh, were bad in 2007-8, uh, we're just thinking, what, what are they going to be like after these cuts? That was Jessica Shepherd, And you can read the full story in Education Guardian or online at guardian.co.uk forward slash education. Still to come, biting the apple, mobile phone competitors link up to fight iPhone. But first, a couple from Sirencester in Gloucestershire have been named as winners of Britain's biggest ever lottery prize. Nigel Page and Justine Laycock told reporters about the moment they realised they'd scooped the £56 million jackpot. Saturday morning I was uh, sitting at the breakfast table with my daughter... She was just about to go off on a skiing trip and we, we had the, um, the news on and they said uh, that someone had won, you know, in Spain and in Britain. So I said to my daughter, perhaps we better go and check the tickets in a minute, see if we'd won. So um, we finished off our breakfast and I went into the other room, turned the laptop on, logged into my um, lottery account and up it popped on the screen. Congratulations, you have won £56 million. And 20p. And 20p, yeah. I know that 20p is very important very to you, important. isn't it, um, So there it was in front of you. Did you believe it when you saw it? No, I didn't. I, my daughter was sat next to me as well, and um, she was, like, bemused. Didn't really know what to make of it. So um, we looked at it for a couple of seconds, read it three or four times. I thought, I'm going to have to go and get Justine to check this. So uh, I normally leave Justine in bed asleep on a Saturday morning, so I... Uh, Trundled upstairs, woke up and said, uh, you've got to come and check this. I'm not sure. It's really important. You must get out of bed. So what, was your, what were you thinking then? Because he wasn't telling you why you needed to get up. No, I just got up. If life says it's important. So um, went downstairs. He, he then lost his voice. He couldn't speak. He's shaking. And I went, oh, my God. So we sat there for about one minute in silence and I yeah. said, pass the phone. So I dialed the number and it just basically said, we do not send bogus congratulations unless you have one. So I looked at him and I said, Nigel, you've won 56 million. And he went, I'm 20 pence. <laughs> Don't forget that. He got his voice back. We just went in the front room, didn't we, and just stood there laughing. It was just an amazing feeling, wasn't it? Yeah. Nigel Page and Justin Laycock celebrating. And sticking with the super-rich, they're worth well over £100 billion and they look set to get even wealthier. The combined worth of the 10 richest Russians has jumped 84% in a list just published. Their money buys them football clubs, golf courses and an endless supply of luxurious yachts. Our Moscow correspondent Luke Harding's been finding out about the people behind the huge profits. Well, uh, this reveals that the rich Russians have got even richer uh, after a a really um, exceedingly dodgy year in 2008 and 2009 where they actually saw their fortunes plummet. Russia's sort of top oligarchs have bounced back rather triumphantly. Last year they were worth about $75 billion. Now they're worth $139 billion. And not only that, we have a kind of new super oligarch, if you like, and, and that is Vladimir Lysin, who's a steel magnate, 
uh, who has a relatively low profile and is not greatly known outside Russia. And he is now worth $18.8 billion, according to the um, Russian magazine Finance. His name in Russian, Lisin, means fox, apparently. So obviously he's quite cunning in the way that he behaves and goes about his business. Well, well I mean, n- none of these oligarchs are rich by chance. Uh, it's a well-known story, but it's worth repeating. Basically, in the 90s, after the collapse of communism, a bunch of, I would say, fairly unscrupulous businessmen managed to lay their hands on Russia's sort of state assets, which were privatized in these kind of sweetheart auctions. Now, I mean, that's how Roman Abramovich got rich, the um, owner of Chelsea. And um, uh, Leeson at this period, uh, he and a group of other traders took over most of Russia's steel industry. Uh, Since then, his fortunes have prospered. But um, I think what's quite interesting about him is that he's been described as a sort of proletarian success story. Uh, He started off in the 70s working as a mechanic in a coal mine, Um, And he was clearly very able. He studied, um, he trained at a metallurgy institute in Siberia. But he's risen from kind of nothing to everything. And it's a sort of classic fairy tale, if you like. How does his wealth manifest itself and those of his other rich Russians? I mean, apparently they've been buying their own golf courses now and uh, spending, spending and spending again. Well, it depends on who you look at. There was a kind of moment about a year ago where where certainly conspicuous consumption was uh, out of fashion. It was politically unwise to be seen to be throwing your money around. Uh, I mean, of course, the the, the greatest exemplar of this is is Mr. Abramovich, who continues to order himself yachts and buy properties and so on. I mean, he he spends like no one else. But the others enjoy very lavish lifestyles, of, of course. But you know, some, for example, Alexander Lebedev, the businessman who, who owns the London Evening Standard and may soon become the new owner of The Independent, he's always very dismissive of oligarch consumption. He says he doesn't have a yacht, and he basically thinks that these guys are pretty vulgar. One of the interesting things as well is that uh, there have been books written now about how rich these Russians are. One author says that it's amazing the level of luxury that they can achieve. My masseurs lives on the lower ground of my house, according to one rich Russian woman. So women particularly are also a lot richer than they used to be in Russia, or some of them anyway. Well, well that's true. I mean, it, it, you do see, if you go around Russia's nightclubs, um, you, you do occasionally see sort of young women who are basically kind of prowling, trying to kind of bag themselves uh, one of these uh, the oligarchs. They're, they're known, there's a Russian word, they're known as a Forbes if you can get yourself a Forbes, then you're basically you're, you're made. Forbes is, is the rival rich list, which appears every May. Uh, of course, that's true. But I think actually that paradoxically, all of these oligarchs live in, in one particular rustic area of Moscow, um, around kind of Barvika and Zhukova, which is also home to uh, Prime Minister Putin. And while their lives, you know, seem perfect, actually, I think in many ways it's, it, it's rather um, appalling because they're surrounded by bodyguards all the time. They can never use public transport. Uh, they're driven everywhere. They're constantly in fear of kidnapping and so on. And so while they do in, enjoy kind of extraordinary lifestyles, I think, you know, it's, it's a rather surreal life, shut off from, from the world. And, of course, shut off from most Russians who are struggling to make ends meet um, and are really rather poor. That was Luke Harding. Apple's iPhone may be the current must-have gadget in mobile phone technology, but dozens of firms are looking at ways to knock it off its perch. Much of the iPhone's success story rests on its ability to persuade us to download and use mobile applications or apps. Its competitors want to build their own app-style services, which will be available on their handsets. And now Microsoft has announced its attempt to unseat the iPhone, the Windows Phone. 
Richard Ray is in Barcelona for the Mobile World Congress. He spoke to Guardian Tech Weekly's Scott Cooley. It's an attempt to bring together um, onto one place um, all of your applications, your contacts, your Facebook, your um, all your different social networking sites, um, all your music and all your video well into, into one phone. It sort of links in with Zoom, it links in with Xbox Live, and it's really their attempt to say to the, to the, not just the operators, but the handset manufacturers as well, Windows on a mobile phone can work. Okay, does it look good? Does it, does it look like it could, uh, could work? I unfortunately got into a bit of trouble um, by using the, the wonder of Twitter um, during this press conference, where I said it was essentially the bastard child of Vodafone's 360 service, uh, Motorola Blur and HTC's TouchFlow screen. Um, and essentially, it, it does look like those three put together, sort of bashed together. So what you do when you look at the look at the phone, you sort of you can you flick between um, individual screens. They call it hubs. So you'll have a music hub, which you can pull all your music and video and everything else into one specific area. Um, all your photos go into it as well. You have a, a sort of people hub, which is what all your friends are doing, and you yourself, on all your different social networks. So if you have more than about five friends, I suspect after about 20 minutes, it's going to be phenomenally confusing to work out who's doing what. But it's an attempt to move beyond um, what, what Apple has with the iPhone, which is where um, essentially, the iPhone is like a long corridor with lots of rooms off it, and all those rooms are individual applications, or your email, or your messages, or whatever. And you can't go between the rooms; you have to go back into the corridor. You have to switch. You have to switch off one app, and go back into another app. What um, Windows is trying to do with mobile phone is have everything so that they, everything sort of seamlessly integrates. A lot of that happening in the in the background um, using the network. Um, and the phones that they have, we don't actually have one to play with. Uh, Steve Ballmer had a prototype on, on stage, um, which he showed everyone, but we won't be seeing phones until the end of this year, which is really quite a long lead time. Now, he says the reason that it's taking so long to actually produce any handsets um, is because he wants to give the developer community and the individual operators and the networks as well time to really get used to the system and to come up with innovative and exciting uses of, of Windows Phone. Um, for everyone else, the suspicion is that actually some of the handset manufacturers don't want to do it. And finally, the iPhone, and this seems to be this the elephant in the room, who they're, they're not there officially, but they are there. What's been the effect on, on all the exhibitors there this year? Well, and, uh, Apple would never do anything as vulgar as actually have a public presence at, at um, thing like Mobile World Congress. They only do their own shows. But they are here. They're, all, they're lurking around. Occasionally you will bump into someone who will introduce himself as Brad from Cupertino. Uh, they'll never give you a surname or tell you what they actually do for a living. Um, but they are knocking around. Um, some of them, as far as I can work out from the operators, are, are going up to the, the operators and talking to them about the iPad because obviously they're searching for uh, wireless partners outside the U.S. Um, so they've been doing a lot of that. But the iPhone itself, as a product, still casts a very long shadow over this entire industry. That was Richard Ray, and you can follow the Mobile World Congress all week at guardian.co.uk forward slash technology. That's it from us. Phil Maynard was the producer today. My name's Claire Catford. Thank you for listening. <laughs>